Good evening, friends. I'm Mukulika Banerjee. I'm director of the South Asia Center here at LSE. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome all of you to this very special and for us at the South Asia Center and LSE a very auspicious day because the South Asia Center has just completed one year of its existence. And it's a very good moment to mark this year at uh, this very special evening where we will have, we have a fantastic panel of uh, speakers uh, led by, of course, Professor Amartya Sen, who has been a regular visitor to the school, and many of you I know are eager to hear him. And alongside him is a panel uh, of two LSE professors who had a lifetime's work on Bangladesh and a PhD student who's just finished her PhD on Bangladesh. So LSE has a fantastic body of work growing on Bangladesh here, and that's what we'll be uh, discussing. The South Asia Center, of course, was set up uh, to provide uh, a new platform for, for engagement for all the South Asia-related research that's ongoing at the London School of Economics, uh, a greater degree of public engagement and uh, uh, interdisciplinary uh, and multidisciplinary discussions. We have attempted to have uh, various kinds of events uh, relating to all the South Asian uh, countries, and we also aim to collaborate between different departments uh, within the school and uh, engage with institutions outside the school uh, to talk about the region and also to, to generate and foster discussions about what LSE is good at that we think the South Asia Center can make happen. Uh, this evening's event is a perfect example of the kind of thing we would like to do a lot more of. It's a collaborative event uh, between uh, three different uh, bodies, the South Asia Center, the Gender Institute here at LSE, and the Eva Colony Trust, uh, which you will hear more about from Diane Perrins, who's, who will talk about that briefly. Thank you. Well, hello and welcome. Uh, I'm Dan Perrins. I'm director of the Gender Institute that has been going for 20 years now. And uh, you can see our website for our activities. Um, but on behalf of the Gender Institute and the Ava Colony Memorial Trust, I'd like to welcome you again to this event and to thank the LSE and the South Asia Centre for co-hosting it with us. Um, but tonight I'm speaking as a trustee of the Ava Colony Memorial Trust. Um, I had the great privilege and pleasure of working with Ava Colony when we, were both, when we both taught at City of London Polytechnic, uh, which is now London Metropolitan University. Ava was an economist whose work and passion were concerned with analysing and redressing inequality and advancing social justice. After her untimely death in 1985, Amartya Sen established the trust to commemorate Ava's life and her work and to reflect and further her belief in the possibility of social justice. Now, the trust manages donations that we receive um, and it's made up of colleagues from City Poly, now London Met, friends, some of whom are here tonight, family, including uh, Ava's children and um, Amartya's children, Indrana and Kabir. Um, it's chaired by Chris Elvin, who's here tonight. 
And the principal activity of the Trust is to award annual bursaries to economic students at London Met now who are experiencing specific hardships and to enable them to complete their studies. Now, at present, times are very hard for staff and students at London Met. You may have seen more redundancies are promised. Um, But it's especially hard for students from low-income families and those who've come to the UK as refugees. And each year, the Trust receive many applications and generally award six or seven bursaries. Um, And by making these awards, we hope to redress some aspects of um, inequality and so further help to further uh, Ava's belief, acting them out in this case. Um, The Trust also organises biannual lectures linked to Ava's interest. The first five were published in a book called Living as Equals and includes an essay by Amartya on social commitment and democracy. And tonight's panel discussion is concerned with tales of the unexpected, gender equality and social progress in Bangladesh. And I understand we're going to hear a slightly more uh, optimistic story about addressing at least some aspects of gender inequality. So I now hand over to my colleague, Nigel Kabir, who will chair and also contribute to tonight's discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, good evening, everyone. I'm very, very pleased to be here on this occasion. And uh, I would like to very briefly introduce the panelists. And um, starting with myself, <laughs> I'm Naila Kabir. I'm a professor of gender and development and at the Gender Institute, though I'm in transition to a 50% position at the Department for International Development. I am originally from Bangladesh, and I have continued to work on Bangladesh over the years. And I work on gender primarily, but on other forms of inequality, caste, class, race, and so on. And I'm particularly interested in labor markets. Um, In order of uh, speaking, we have David Lewis, who is Professor of Social Policy and Development at the the LSE, and currently Head of Department of Social Policy. A social anthropologist, he teaches and undertakes research in theory and practice of international development, specializes in South Asia, and has had long fieldwork experience in Bangladesh. He's authored several books, including Anthropology and Development, Challenges for the 21st Century with Katie Gardner, Non-Governmental Organizations in Development with Nazneen Kanji, and Bangladesh Politics, Economy, and Civil Society. And then there is Julie Huang, who is a PhD student at the Anthropology Department here, and who will be defending her thesis at the end of this month. Um, So she will very soon be known as Dr. Julie Huang. She conducted her fieldwork in northwest Bangladesh and northeast India in Assam about social enterprise and market-driven approaches to poverty alleviation. She's already the author of a book, Tribeswomen of Iran, Weaving Memories Among the Kashkai Nomads, which was based on her research in the Zagros Mountains. I suspect our fourth uh, speaker does not require an introduction, but in case there is anyone who doesn't know who he is, uh, he is an economist and a philosopher whose work in both these fields has brought them closer together and has required economists to ask questions about the ethical dimensions of their work and has asked philosophers to engage with the troubling complexities of real-world moral dilemmas. 
The lexicon of development studies has been transformed by his ideas as it has incorporated concepts of entitlements, capabilities, missing women, development as freedom, and non-idealistic notions of justice. He is also a major influence in feminist economics, and the journal Feminist Economics has a special issue dedicated to his work. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Economics in 1998, the Bharat Ratna in 1999, the John Maynard Keynes Prize in 2015. He is currently Thomas W. Lamont University Professor and Professor of Economics and Philosophy at Harvard University. After, um, among many of his other academic positions, he was Distinguished Fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, Master of Trinity College, Cambridge. He was Professor of LSE at LSE between 1971 and 1977, then part-time between 1978 and 1992, and then after that he abandoned us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm going to uh, start off. And each of us will speak for about 10 minutes, roughly. And we will give Amartya a little bit more time, as he has probably got much more to say on this. So let me start off by asking, what do we mean by the Bangladesh paradox? It's quite simply the fact that Bangladesh has been doing remarkably well on a range of social indicators, including indicators of gender equality, despite the fact it has very low levels of per capita income. And very poor quality governance. I mean, Bangladesh has been named the world's most corrupt country for five consecutive years by Transparency International. And even now it performs worse on governance issues than other countries at uh, similar levels of income. But the, these are conditions, governance and per capita income, that are supposed to lead to social progress. So their absence should not lead to social progress. And that is where the paradox lies. But the paradox is worthy of attention for other reasons as well, and that is the contrast it provides between the deep pessimism that marked the decade or so after Bangladesh won its independence in 1971. There are the notorious references to Bangladesh as an international basket case, Bangladesh as test case for development. If anything works here, it'll work anywhere. The studies of the high and apparently irrational rates of fertility behavior, which were attributed to this very uh, long-entrenched pro-natalist uh, culture, and it was also referred to as one of the most extreme and non-negotiable forms of patriarchy in the world. So, given these inauspicious beginnings, the Bangladesh's performance on the social front has come as much of a surprise to Bangladeshis themselves as it has to the rest of the world. Indicators of progress include declining fertility rates, uh, decline in infant and child mortality, decline in maternal mortality, rapid increase in education, um, a lower incidence of low birth weight babies, uh, almost 100% immunization, and so on. And all of these have been accompanied by a closing of the gender gap on these indicators and a reversal in some cases. <coughs> so there are now more boys than girls at primary and secondary levels of education, not at tertiary. Girls now are 20% more likely to live than boys, which is the pattern in the rest of the world. And um, <coughs> my own research suggests that along with the decline in, dis in, in gender disparities in under five mortality and discrimination in under five children, there has been a decline in strong son preference. So we are seeing a revaluation of daughters. So not surprisingly, and the other point is that these are not confined to the wealthy. They are across the board, and that is why they show up in the national statistics. 
So not surprisingly, there's a real burgeoning of the literature puzzling over this paradox. Now, one study that attempted to find out why Bangladesh does better on social indicators than other countries at the same level of income acknowledged but ruled out per capita income, uh, levels of uh, quality of governance, uh, levels of aid, development of infrastructure, all the kind of usual suspects, if you like, in, in promoting social progress. Instead, it focused in on specific policies and the manner of implementation. So these began out with, in the early years with the doorstep delivery of family planning services to women, necessary in a country where further restrictions confine women to the home. And these family planning services were delivered by women. Other, other measures include the oral rehydration extension program, which provided low-cost home-based solutions for diarrhea, one of the main causes of infant mortality, child mortality, social campaigns around immunization, which is why we have such high levels, <coughs> the government's food for education program, a, a female secondary school scholarship to prevent girls from leaving school and getting married, BRAC's informal schools for hard-to-reach girls, uh, and community-based uh, promotion of health services which rely on women as their main outreach agents. One reason for the success of, of what has happened in Bangladesh is the synergies between all these different elements, between the decline in family planning, education, uh, infant mortality, and so on. And what I would like to argue in my presentation is that women's agency <coughs> has been a major factor in driving these synergies. Let me begin that argument by pointing to what is one of the most robust findings coming out of the gender and development literature. And that is women's access to valued resources, such as land, credit, cash transfers, paid work, um, education, and so on, all lead to investments in the well-being and capabilities of their family, particularly their children. In fact, a review of econometric studies on this topic said even though individual studies may have shortcomings, they use different methodologies, different forms of data, to suggest that this finding is extremely robust. <coughs> and I want to use this stylized finding as a lens through which to view a number of critical developments in Bangladesh, each women-led, each mired in controversy, but each forming a part of the gendered explanation for the Bangladesh paradox. <coughs> Now, many of us have argued that childbearing women, a child, women in childbearing ages, have a stronger st stake in the means of contraception than men, because it is their bodies and well-being that is affected by having too many, too close, too early childbirths. When I was doing my PhD fieldwork in 1979, <coughs> many women came up to me and asked me if I was from family planning, and could they please have Deba Provera? Depo-Provera was an injectable contraceptive, and the reason they singled it out is because its use could be concealed from their husbands and their in-laws. So there was a very strong drive amongst these women for means of contraception because of the desire to control their own fertility. But Depo-Provera was also not considered to be properly tested, and hence the controversy. There were many feminists who argued that the Bangladesh family planning program was a war on women's bodies. And yet, on the ground level, for all its side effects, for women, they had to choose between 
excessive levels of childbirth and possible maternal mortality and having a form of contraception that people didn't quite know very much about. Bangladesh has, as a result, reported one of the most rapid fertility declines in demographic history. And I think it was largely led by these women. But there's one other point to notice about the family planning program, and that it was largely staffed by women. So for the first time in Bangladesh, you had this, the, 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 the prospect of women with education doing jobs, paid work at the level of communities. And community-based services remains an important source of employment for women. <clears throat> the second major change, also unexpected, given the practice of female seclusion. In 1979, a widely cited study of patriarchy pointed out what female seclusion did. It basically circumscribed the, the labor market for women to two to 400 um, meters around their homestead. They could go no further. Yet even as that publication came out, we saw the rise of an export-oriented garment industry, and overnight, thousands of women came to join it. These women came alone or in groups, and they certainly transgressed the 400-meter radius because they left their villages and came into the, uh, into the nearest towns to find these jobs. It was detailed research that I did with these women that started to point out to me what the nature of access to work did for women. It allowed them to renegotiate abusive relationships. It allowed them to help their parents and their husbands. But above all, it allowed them to give their daughters a better chance in life than they had had. Education seemed to hold the key, and it was their ability in, to invest in their daughter's education that led these women to defy husbands and to defy their societies. The implications of garment work for women's decision-making power has been picked up in other studies, and a very recent one has suggested that the proximity to a garment industry has a far more positive impact on girls' education than the government's secondary school uh, stipend program. I don't know if that's true, but that's what it says. <coughs> there, is no there is no doubt that these jobs are exploitative, and that, that exploitation has intensified as competition within the global, global garment value chain has intensified. But there is also no doubt that the garment sector has had unanticipated repercussions on women's mobility and life chances. The third area of change is, of course, microfinance, another area beset with controversy, both amongst feminists and in the wider community. Although we talk about the microfinance sector, in fact, there are many different kinds of microfinance, some that combine it with social development and, lit and legal literacy, some that are extremely minimalist. What I think is important to say is, although the jury is out as to whether microfinance provides sustainable route out of poverty, there seems to be very widespread agreement that microfinance, which has targeted ma mainly women in Bangladesh, has had important social impacts. Education, uh, family planning, and so on. And if we move away from the idea of microfinance impact in terms of entrepreneurship and look at the broader idea of livelihoods, we can see once again why access to money, access to loans, has allowed enhanced decision-making decision power of the kind that has driven social progress. So the sum total of the argument I'm making is that while the policies and activities of governments and NGOs have created new structures of opportunity 
in the field of social development, it was the transformations of women's agency through a variety of different routes, including policy innovations on the social front, that was a major force in translating these opportunities into concrete change in the family. And given the way that patriarchy has defined women as economic liabilities, dependent on women for their entire life, the motivation that drove many of these women was the desire that their daughters <coughs> transcend this fate. I want to end with three general points. One is, the NGO factor is important not simply as service delivery, but as vehicle for new ideas in the countryside, ideas about women's rights and gender equality. But the fact that these organizations have been forced to abandon or to give up the advocacy role has meant that they have left a space for more intolerant forms of religious activism to flourish in Bangladesh. The second is as a social homogeneity of Bangladesh, together with its dense population and the close proximity of settlements, has allowed new ideas to flourish easily. New ideas in Bangladesh do not have to jump over caste barriers. They do not have to batter down feudal resistance. It is still a relatively homogenous society, and I suspect that the worst outcomes are to be found amongst the minorities. Third, of course, I don't believe that women are necessarily better leaders than men, but the fact that for the last 25 years we have had women leading Bangladesh must surely have had some impact at the level of perception. To conclude, Bangladesh has not had an ideal pathway to progress. It has been the low road rather than the high road. And at the heart of the various controversies that surround family planning, microfinance, and garment sectors is the deficit of democratic accountability. And so I ask myself if we had had a more democratic structure, a more democratic series of governments over the years, what might we have achieved? Thank you very much, Naila. Um, I realized that when I saw the title to this uh, panel, Tales of the Unexpected, um, I realized that it was, a, it was a TV show in the 1970s, which I'm not quite old enough to remember properly. But then after thinking about it a little bit more, I realized that I was confusing it with The Twilight Zone. And I thought <laughs> that would probably make for a very interesting but different <laughs> panel tonight. But what I'm going to talk about are some of, the, some of the big picture factors that underpin this unexpected tale of Bangladesh's journey towards improvements in gender equity. And I'm going to start with the big picture. Historically, the state of Bengal has a long history of radical social movements with both elite and grassroots movements pressuring for social change. So I think this is an important factor. We then have to also, thinking historically, look at the legacy of the Liberation War of 1971, which led to the country's split from Pakistan and provided momentum for change, which has, I think, always given recognition. It's been inclusive of women's rights. It's given recognition to the importance of women's agency in nation-building and as productive economic actors. And although this is not been a straightforward thing at all. It's kept women highly visible in the state's expansion of public services. We've also got to look at the global dimension, issues of globalization, women's entry into the labor market in ever greater numbers as the ready-made garments industry has expanded uh, since the 1980s, with important economic, political, and social implications, as Nyla's work has shown and she's already mentioned. There's also been the policy dimension, I think it's fair to say that 
that the government has always had a very pragmatic approach in combining multiple actors and agencies, public and private approaches, in which both state and non-state actors have worked together, though not always easily or smoothly. Also, of course, we have the international context of the development industry, and Bangladesh has been very much at the centre of the, you know, the donor world and the international development world. It's been acted upon by those agencies. And here again, very often, not in positive ways, often, often retrogressive pressures, I would argue, but it's... But at its best, I think this connection with the world of development policy has helped to connect uh, policymakers and activists into global networks and alliances, information flows and connections. But then we've got the well-publicized work of the non-state organizations, the NGOs. NGOs such as BRAC, Grameen Bank and Nigera Kori in providing both community-level grassroots mobilization and also providing loans for productive activities. But here, as we've already heard from Nyla, the emphasis has always been on small-scale grassroots innovation that are easy to scale up, <coughs> easy to experiment with and to learn from in a small, densely populated and relatively homogenous country like Bangladesh. And I think at the heart of all of these sorts of factors has been change that's always been contested, it's always been unpredictable, and it's often been unplanned, driven, driven much more by people's own efforts to experiment as much as by those of policymakers or professionals. There's a resilience in Bangladesh which I think is important. It comes from people's struggles, struggles, uh, struggles against poverty, struggles against environmental instability and, at different points, struggles against political repression. But I also want to, to say that this unexpected progress also conceals much unexpected complexity and ambiguity. And not everything is quite as it might seem. We've had very impressive economic growth during the past decade or so, uh, nearly two decades. But the political picture is, of course, much less impressive. We have an, Ill you know, we have an illiberal uh, democracy that shows few positive signs of resolving its difficulties. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as uh, Joseph Devine, um, who wrote in 2008 of the rotten foundations of Bangladesh's development success, I think that goes too far, but issues of poor governance, of continuing insecurity and patronage are, of course, very, very important. We've seen how gender equity is growing in important ways, but there are still tensions between political and religious extremists and other sections of the population, and minorities in particular. And these are beneath the surface, and they're currently, once again, becoming a cause for concern. Um, I'd say that the popular attribution of much of Bangladesh's progress to NGOs perhaps misses the point also that state building in Bangladesh has always been undertaken both by state and non-state actors in a kind of hybrid formation. 
And this means that there's always been a really important element of co-production around state and civil society during this still relatively short time span since the country became independent. So we're looking at something which is, I think, highly distinctive and doesn't really fit into the neat um, sort of good governance um, in narrative of state in partnership with NGOs. It's much more of an antagonistic, much more of, a, uh, of an enmeshed and mutually um, strengthened um, you know, relationship. It's not a neat uh, division of labor. So I'd just like to end by saying that I think Bangladesh's journey has been largely unplanned. It's been experimental. And there have been a great many setbacks and reversals along the way environmental crises, extreme poverty, famines. Um, but there are always many reasons for people to be pessimistic about the future of Bangladesh. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a topic of conversation that almost every Bangladeshi I know is always ready to engage in. But without being under any illusions, I remain very optimistic. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for sharing your Friday your evenings with us. Um, I know you have the uh, weekend ahead, and so thanks for coming. Um, I would like to speak with you about women's experiences on the ground with entrepreneurship and mobile phones. However, I will not be telling you about how mobile phones are meant to empower um, women entrepreneurs by being able to check distant market prices or about how market access will emancipate women. But in the spirit of, um, of tales of the unexpected, um, because those, those effects are ones that development practitioners uh, would like to achieve and those are the intended effects, um, I would like to share with you um, some unexpected experiences of women's, ex of, um, women's experiences with uh, mobile phones and entrepreneurship, um, and uh, and and give you a bit of context about the pace of transformation in rural society from a grounded perspective. So I recently completed my doctoral research in several villages in northwestern Bangladesh, and I lived for many months with a family whose generational trajectory embodies um, some of these large-scale changes that we've been hearing about. So the mother in this family. Uh, let's call her Malika, um, married in her mid-teens, probably in the late 1980s, although she doesn't know what year it was at the time or how old she was, and she never had any formal schooling. And her family also did not have to provide her a dowry uh, because she explained that this was not a practice that was common among poor Muslim families um, at the time. Now, Malika's first daughter was able to finish high school in the late 2000s, in large part thanks to a governmental stipend for girls' education. And there she admired her female teachers, and she aspired to work in a school one day. Then at a distant relative's home, she met a man, fell in love, and they married, which required a dowry of 600 pounds. The man had a well-paying job in Dhaka, uh, and he forbade his new wife from working. <coughs> And he said that only the wives of poor men need to work outside the home, and that a woman with a job would bring shame to her family. 
And he bought her a mobile phone so that while he was in the capital working, uh, he could keep track of her activities and whereabouts. But then Malika's second daughter, who was only a few years younger than the first, said to me one evening, I want an arranged marriage so that I can be a modern woman. And in this daughter's reasoning, a love marriage would cloud her judgment and prevent her from realizing her dreams of gaining skilled employment and being financially independent from her husband. And even younger still, phone-toting high school girls often confidently insisted that they would not even consider marriage as an option until after gaining their uh, master's degrees. So you can see within just one or one and a half generations how the life possibilities for many young women have expanded tremendously. And yet social change also produces many unexpected outcomes and not all of which we, are, we would consider progressive and equitable. And so that's why I wanted to add some texture to these changes that we are seeing uh, in relation to the hype first about women's entrepreneurship and also about the spread of mobile phones. So in Bangladesh, as elsewhere, development practice has increasingly focused on ideas of financial sustainability and empowerment through market participation and helping the poor to help themselves. And projects often target women as potential entrepreneurial breadwinners for their families and hope to catalyze a kind of trickle-up economics. And indeed, in rural Bangladesh, as Naila was mentioning, uh, women entrepreneurs have become semi-iconic figures in recent decades and extensions of many public services. In addition to the ubiquitous image of uh, the micro-credit taker, um, in, as um, Bangladeshi women have... Um, done for many years. The prominent organization BRAC, for instance, has trained village-level health workers who do not receive a salary from BRAC. Instead, they take um, a fee for each health-related service they provide. And uh, the multinational company Unilever and aid agency CARE created a program in which women earn a living by selling fast-moving consumer goods to villagers. Women entrepreneurs also provide mobile phone services, internet access, birth registrations, and so on. And one effect of this proliferation of women entrepreneurs is that the publicly visible and successful ones serve as exemplars for other young women and extend the boundaries of what is perceived to be acceptable and aspirational for women's work. Yet the reality of being an entrepreneur is often quite different. Young women answer to and are monitored by male social enterprise staff. Their income often does not remain their own, and little if any of their domestic work is transferred over to male family members. And Lamia Karim has described this process as the organizational patriarchy laying or layering on top of the family patriarchy, and the social and gender relations remain largely unchallenged and inequitable. And many of these entrepreneurship training programs increasingly require participants to draw a loan often up to a thousand pounds up front where previously the costs of training and initial inputs were covered by organizational budgets they now are increasingly devolved onto the participants themselves with massive upfront risk and in the case of entrepreneurs attrition or business failure then such a debt is ruinous for their families and new positive valuations on women's ability to earn yield other unexpected effects. So, for instance, in marriage negotiations, the capacity for paying a dowry um, typically rested on the girl's family's assets. And now, as new types of entrepreneurship debt are increasingly available specifically to women, the responsibility for dowry often falls on the young women themselves. 
girls are often compelled to participate in these programs from a young age in order to finance the increasingly inflationary dowry amounts set by the families of young men. So this example reveals some of the ironic consequences of programs designed for women's empowerment when they fail to consider actual power dynamics. So the second set of unexpected outcomes is about mobile phones and their role in how women construct their own futures. Between 2004 and 2014, mobile cellular subscriptions in Bangladesh uh, went from two subscriptions per 100 people to 80, 80. And this near ubiquity of mobile phones has led to an unexpected social phenomenon, one that young people call wrong number relationships. <laughs> and these relationships are initiated primarily by young men who dial random numbers on their mobile phones until they hear a young woman answer, and then they strike up a conversation. And if both parties have a good time, then the phone numbers are saved and the conversations are repeated. They often involve long and involved discussions about what each one did that day, what they ate, where they went, and other mundane topics. <laughs> what is revolutionary and exciting is not really the content of the conversations <coughs> per, se, per se, but instead the ability to reach out and communicate easily with other young people of the opposite gender. And sometimes digital wrong number friends agree to meet, which usually precipitates the immediate downfall of the relationship. <laughs> in these cases, um, women often explain that it's because the boy turned out not to be handsome or he's already married <laughs> or he had exaggerated his job prospects. <laughs> but sometimes meetings hasten an unrelenting desire to marry, which creates tremendous scandal among family and neighbors. And this always has far more negative implications for women than for men. Because of these risks, which are bolstered by the stories of shame befalling individuals who take these relationships too far, young women primarily desire arranged marriage. Yet we would be mistaken to equate the preference for arranged marriage with surrender to patriarchal oppression and the incidence of love marriage with women's empowerment. Because while young women primarily do still desire arranged marriage, it is often for reasons such as those of Malika's second daughter, who wanted the clarity of mind and independence of action to pursue a career outside the home that a sensibly arranged match might allow and a love marriage might not. And what is important in this story is the critical reflection and the power to choose that, that, um, that these enable. And often a turning point that these women um, experience is in realizing that men do indeed exist who approve of women having a professional career even if they've never met any in their own villages. And the two options, such as Malika's first daughter, of building a successful teaching career on the one hand and finding a successful husband on the other, are no longer mutually exclusive. So if I would draw any main conclusions about uh, my interlocutor's experiences of social change and technological progress, I would highlight that first, technologies such as debt or entrepreneurship training or mobile phones in themselves are not empowering or disempowering. They are always embedded in existing social relations and power dynamics. As such, they can open up new possibilities for people, but they can also constrain people's actions in other ways. Entrepreneurship is thus not a reliable indicator for choice, and the incidence of arranged marriage is not a reliable indicator for lack of choice. Mobile phones can be instruments of expanding one's horizons, but they can also be devices of surveillance and control. 
Second, we need to rethink how we use binary terms like empowerment and disempowerment, or traditional and modern. For instance, kinship systems provide important safety nets and assurances of security that can enable women to pursue what they would consider modern aspirations. And despite good intentions, development interventions can expose people to new kinds of risk and gendered exploitation. And third, and finally, change and progress are always nonlinear, and so no intervention will be unilaterally positive or negative. And that's why it's important to conduct research into the unintended, unexpected, and surprising features of rapid transformation processes, such as ones encountered in Bangladesh today. Thank you. I think you'll be disappointed to hear I'm not going to provide an explanation as to why telephonic relationships break down once you meet, <laughs> nor whether having FaceTime would reduce the <laughs> or not. And that would be a way of discriminating between the various hypotheses. And it sounds fascinating. And I uh, your viva will all, there will be an actual event, would there be? Yeah, well, we all wish you a great time. I had a very good time because my two examiners quarreled with each other uh, <laughs> on as to what is it that I'd said. <laughs> and it was quite clear to me that one of them had read the first two chapters, <laughs> and the other is not quite clear to me whether he read any of that at all. But uh, it was entertaining and, for me, an enormously relaxing occasion when I could see the sorting themselves out. <coughs> now, I think this is really a, one of the most exciting, important, and I think still, uh, ultimately, with all the explanations, including the very interesting one that's come up, a puzzling subject. Uh, and Bangladesh's transformation has been so radical from being taken to be, quote-unquote, the basket case, as they used to be said, and to being one of the highest performers uh, in many respects, uh, and including the fertility decline, which I think Naila mentioned. Uh, it's quite remarkable. I mean, some of these are worth thinking about how dramatic the change has been. For example, um, 25 years ago, India's life expectancy was three years higher than that of Bangladesh. Uh, now it is three years lower, uh, even though it's also increased in India. India's go economic growth rate has been faster. It was 25 years ago, it was um, uh, 50 percent richer than per capita term, uh, per capita income term than Bangladesh. Now it's twice as rich. And yet in the same period, child mortality has been overtaken by, uh, a decline has been overtaken by Bangladesh. It used to be higher in Bangladesh, now it's lower. Fertility rate used to be higher in Bangladesh, now it's lower. And, and very substantially lower indeed. So I think if you look at that, the, there's been a radical change which has happened over a period of a few decades. And I think it will be uh, difficult to um, be satisfied with any of these explanations, though we see 
lines of mm. analysis emerging. Mm. And, and, and that makes the subject really exciting. Mm. Um, I think the different factors could be separated out. Uh, there's the NGOs, there's the microfinance, there's the educational focus. And there I must say, I mean, I, um, I, uh, I, uh, I travel with, um, uh, with, with some black people to many black schools and, and quite remarkable uh, how mm. uh, successful they are and, um, and sometimes how articulate the girls are, which I, is a subject I'll come back to uh, in my more than 10 minutes that you said. <laughs> <laughs> generally assume that I'm long-winded. <laughs> Must take a bit more time. But I, was, I went to a school when I was... Uh, there was a window where they, they uh, you know, Bengal is like sitting on the window if you can get there. So I did, and there was this little girl sitting there, and and she was rather well dressed. And I asked her, saying, "Are you always so neatly dressed, so beautifully <laughs> dressed?" And then she reflected on the question. I was speaking to her in Bengali, of course, and she said, "Yes, I'm always beautifully dressed." She said. <laughs> She conceded. And then she said, you know, but today a bit more. Because you see there is a visitor coming here. (laughs) 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 So I was uh, very impressed by the conversation. And I'll come back to that point uh, uh, further. But as uh, Nala said, the the role of women has been dramatic. I'm not sure whether the the headship of the state being women. I mean, we have tried it in India, we have tried it in Sri Lanka, we have tried it in Pakistan. It doesn't necessarily have quite that effect. So it certainly is maybe a factor, could be a factor, because the concerns are different, certainly, or could be different. But if it is, then it's among many factors to be looked at. There's a historical issue on which you spoke quite a bit, and it, it is quite important, uh, but there's a problem with that. I mean, when I was um, young and I was uh, involved with such things as feminist causes, and I think this thing came up, namely the, uh, no, I think, uh, I think it was Mokulika who mentioned there that uh, I was one of the actually founders of the journal called Feminist Economics. Mm. And I wrote a lot in that, and uh, and since my name ends with an A, I would be often got letters from saying, "Dear Miss Sen." <laughs> uh, I did a BBC interview yesterday for the Newsnight, which was meant to be broadcast tomorrow. But I mentioned that my favorite letter came from someone who wrote, um, "Dear Miss Sen, they will never understand us." Uh, But at that time, we were also concerned with the issue of whether being sensitive about gender was right. I mean, instead of saying, uh, you know, generically when you're talking about, I don't know, Syrians or or, or Canadians or or Brazilians, saying that, uh, uh, you know, the the, the, the Canadian person tend to think uh, that 
his entitlement is. Now then you made it his or her, and then for a while it became all her. Now, it's interesting that Bengalis doesn't have a gender, it doesn't even have a distinction of he and she. But it's not always the case, it dropped gender. It dropped gender around the 12th century. There's a history to that too, actually. It's what happened is that all the Sanskrit branches that split between Sovacini, Magadhi, one of them was called Adha Magadhi, and it's that progeny, Assamese, Bengali, and Oriya, that dropped it. And in Bengali, it happened first. Now, maybe it was were these people who were clinically concerned about the language, they were usually teased. Uh, for being so so keen on his or her mm. as if it made a difference. Uh, maybe <coughs> they had their point there, I don't know. They, and it certainly is something that would be worth looking at. Uh, and the fact that many of the also the long poems like Fullaraz Baramasha is about a lonely woman, poor woman's flight, the whole uh, uh, I think it's about 400 years old. Uh, the whole thing is about how her life is deprived, and, and there's some beauty in it. Um, maybe history has something to do with it, but you know, that really doesn't ultimately work at all, because if that was the case, why did it take it so long, and why did it suddenly happen in about three decades? Uh, or maybe stretching it, you can probably stretch it back even to the time of the Bangladeshi independent. But that's also very recent mm. in the history. So there is a problem uh, there to be, uh, to be uh, looked at, but um, um, uh, the, uh, um, a really interesting question that I think remain unexplored. Are some factors to deal with the nature of social change? And it's not, it's increasingly unclear to me. Over life, my lifetime, lots of things have become clearer, but this thing has become <laughs> unclearer. Uh, is that whether looking at it in terms of factors, um, uh, you miss out something. I mean, if you're a mathematician, you're dealing with uh, cross-partial derivatives, how they interrelate with each other. But uh, the interrelationship is very important, and there isn't an easy variable to deal with that. I actually became aware of that while doing a PhD supervision uh, in the 19... 60s when I was teaching in Delhi. And I had a student called D.P. Chaudhuri, the last dead now. But he, uh, he was working on the impact of education on agricultural productivity. And one of the striking things was that if you take, discriminate between individuals, the impact of greater education is very little. If you look at villages, the impact of education is much larger mm. If you look at districts, it's larger still. Now, what's going on here? Mm. Well, part of the thing, of course, is that, I mean, imagine that you are the only literate person, nobody else writes. I mean, then writing isn't very useful for you. 
because there is a lot you can do. You can write um, swear words and you can write <laughs> graffitis. <laughs> yeah. I, I congratulated my friend Ajit Patel, who was here, director for many years, and I said that I used recently, uh, I, I used the loo, and I, I was very, uh, I saw an enormous praise of you uh, on, in the form of graffiti. Because usually they're sort of pretty bad swearing, but this one says, Director, speak up. We often cannot hear you. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you know, if the students are going to do graffiti, wanting to hear you, I can't see anything more complimentary <laughs> than that. I, I think there is a relational aspect. Now, this is true, by the way, of fertility also. Uh, the studies that uh, were done primarily by um, uh, Jean Dres and Mama Tamurti, who was a, um, a postdoctoral fellow of mine at Trinity College, uh, now it works in the World Bank, and they did a joint paper, I think there was a third author, um, and I was involved in that. Um, the fertility declines, again, connected at the individual level. You don't see that very much. Village level a lot, but the highest thing that they found was at the district level. And so it's something about a group being educated rather than an individual. There's something going on mm. in the communicational aspect. And that's where I refer to the uh, young girl who told me that a visitor was coming. Mm. And that's why she was even more <laughs> beautifully dressed that day. I think that communication is mm. very important. One of the things I could mention that I was very stuck since, uh, you know, with my, I was very lucky when I got the Nobel money, I did start to trust one in Bangladesh and one in India. And the, the Bangladesh trust has been mostly concerned and working with WAC, with, uh, with uh, um, uh, women, uh, uh, the gender issue, and, and particularly women journalists. Uh, but the Indian has been studying elementary education and healthcare. And one of the striking things that even when these schools are uh, very, very low quality, they seem to have some kind of a social impact there. And I think what you're looking at is getting people out of their home mm -hmm. and allowing them to chat with each other, which makes a big difference. And that's why also I'm horrified when people say, well, people won't have to go have school. You will have all these electronics at home. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's some of the most important merits of school with be destroyed if that non-isolation uh, is, is removed. So there is a question of the interaction of the different factors and how this works. And I don't know the answer to that, but it's very important. But the second thing I have to mention, if you say, I mean, even before the Bangladesh uh, War of Independence and so on, Bangladesh was thought to, be, thought to be the big foreign exchange earner for Pakistan, but it wasn't thought to be the more advanced part of Pakistan. And every unit, every indicator, it was behind and West Pakistan. Because now it's way ahead. Uh, I mean, the ranking now would be uh, Bangladesh, India, Pakistan. And the issue is that now one would hate to say that war did something good. Mm. And yet, one has to 
ask a question, what is it that a war represents? Mm. Now, let me give you some statistics of English democracy. Um, if you, this is something which I did many years ago and published a paper, I think, like 40 years ago. Uh, so the data stopped, I think, in 1960s, 70s, I think. Now, every decade in 20th century, per capita, uh, sorry, life expectancy between the beginning, like 11, like 1901 to 1911, or 1951 to 1961, goes up by one or two years. The two decades in which the life expectancy takes a leap of seven years. These are the decades 1911 to 21 and 1941 to 51. And the first thought, what are the good things that happened? Well, we had big wars. <laughs> now, of course, war casualties are not included in it because this is life expectancy, say, uh, 41 and 51, 11 and 21. So the war casualties are out. You're just looking at life expectancy as the average that uh, the, essentially how long people would live if they lived their whole, their entire life at the age-specific mortality rate that is prevailing right now. That's, that's the life expectancy question. What made the life expectancy go up? And, you know, some of the early works on this were done here at LSE namely how war made it possible to have a culture of sharing. And one of the, the studies done here, I think Hammond was one of the ones, Titmus was another, which indicated that even though Britain had, in during the Second World War, had um, less food per capita, uh, quite substantially, than before the war, in this period, undernourishment declined. And cases of severe undernourishment entirely disappeared. And one of the reasons for it, of course, they, were, they had rationing. Rationing and control prices. And for the first time, because of food shortage, because of rationing and control prices, many people were being able to afford uh, to buy food in a way they couldn't. Now, that may be governmental policy, but you can't introduce rationing without a war-like situation. <laughs> now, there was a, uh, a, there's an American historian called Winter who did a study of the First World War, not the Second. I did mostly concerned with the Second. Um, the, and he um, discusses how in the First World War, a lot of the culture of sharing became acceptable because you are fighting back to the wall you're ready to do things that you would not. I think it may, could be argued, this is not winter, this is Second World War, and, and even the National Health Service would have been difficult to introduce without the experience of the war. And there were two things going on. One, that they already had a lot of shared health care outside the uh, paying sector. India, of course, had gone the opposite direction. Everything is got privatized. And by the time the next election comes, I don't think there will be any <laughs> major public sector left. But the, uh, the, um, there were the, the fact that the public sector can work uh, was one of the things that emerged quite strongly there. 
And the, there's a question, which of course in America comes up often now, can you have a single fair state-run system? It, 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 it doesn't really, uh, uh, you know, it's not convinced to, mm -hmm. to people there. They're still trying to find, to uh, get out of whatever little Obamacare they had. But the thing to recognize, and this is where a major um, conceptual issue uh, is missed, uh, responsibility is often thought of in terms of accountability. Now, there are two different issues, accountability and responsibility. Accountability is how somebody could catch you. And you need accountability, you need freedom of information, you need everything that Ovinaway and others fought for, and we tried to follow them in agitating for. Accountability is very important. But if everything had to be run by accountability, you couldn't run a good national health service. Mm. Lot of the work has to come simply from people's central responsibility. And I think one of the things that's gone wrong totally in Indian healthcare, that there is nothing that's done excepting in a pure profit system. Mm. And accountability would reduce abuse, but you know, accountability as any economist who has dealt with uh, a um, uh, principal agent problems know, is very difficult to deal with because somebody catches them but they are corruptible too. Mm. Then you have to catch the catcher <laughs> and so on. So ultimately you need a kind of ultimate change of mind. And, and it's not just a question of education. Education certainly helps. Um, an old friend of mine who actually was LSE very years ago, Kumari Jayavardhana from Sri Lanka, once told me, uh, that, that's all she I'm talking about 30 years ago, but I knew her very well, of course, 60 years ago and 50 years ago, told me that Amatya, as you grow older, you sound more and more like Victorian women. All they think <laughs> education will bring about all changes. <laughs> and I, on the whole, I think Victorian women were probably right. But the education involved is much more than, than that. And it's not the Sunday schools either. It's not moral, moral education to schooling. So I think the, the Winter had a nice thing in his book about First World War, what Britain needed was a war a culture without the war. <laughs> it's not clear that it can do that. Now, I think there is no doubt in my mind, that would seem to me clear from everything else that I've done so far, that the, the war of Bangladesh, war of liberation, not only did produce a political change, it changed a psychology. It brought in a sense of doing things together, and also played a major part, even though it's not the women who were fighting uh, in the front, but the women were very involved in that, in, in poetry, in, in, in music, and in, in, in expressing uh, views on the subject. Now I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> so, these are the, so there are these unex, unclear things. How do social psychology change? And what are the impact on it? And if there's and if the war is a very dialectical thing, because you know no one wants war, 
And yet, if that made certain things possible, and mm. how can one do it? And similarly, if the units make a difference, and interaction with each other, like in the education case, uh, could make a difference, then similarly, healthcare, you can show mm. that the units make a much uh, general difference. That, in some way, factorization, may factorization, dividing mm. things up, may bring in some fog along with some light. Mm. Mm. It's what um, Azar Berlin used to say, that it costs a deep green light. <laughs> and he would point out that whenever he, he told me, I told that about a colleague of mine at All Souls College, he said, have you noticed about here every time he speaks, he casts the deep green <laughs> light on it. Uh, it's not, not darkness, Mind you, there is some light, but not clear light either. So I think there is a deep green light in the factorization issue. Okay, thank you. I think uh, you've hit something very important, and that is uh, the, the way things come together and make change, and so trying to separate them out. Uh, yes, as you say, a green light. And I think that's something we need to sort of get our, our finger on, how one conceptualizes that. And I think the issue about war also, uh, it's, for me, I think it destabilized certain aspects of Bangladesh society, which made other forms of change possible. And again, I think that's a very, something that people haven't thought about too much. Uh, I'm going to open it up uh, for an hour, about 20 minutes to, we'll take maybe three at a time. And uh, so uh, could you just put your hand up and introduce yourself? Yes. That's the Bangladeshi High Commissioner. <laughs> you should introduce him. <laughs> He'll introduce Rightly spotted, sir. <laughs> Uh, I don't know how to appreciate the, the panelists, you know. It is a, an eye-opening experience yeah. for me Can you as hold it High Commissioner too. Closer. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, the Nobel Laureate, Mr. Sen, uh, uh, I don't need to appreciate him. I believe that he's the global ambassador for Bangladesh. So I must be very careful what I speak. But uh, given uh, the very scholastic, uh, very intuitive, you know, uh, and instructive observations by the, all the great panelists. But I would like to uh, highlight uh, one of the core element of uh, the, the green light, although it is deep green light, Mr. Sen just mentioned. So why it appeared in the horizon of Bangladesh? And he rightly mentioned that it is the war made these things changed. 1971, War of Liberation Could I ask you to be a little brief so we can take Yes, so 1971 war was a, a kind of a ultimate expression of the cravings of the people of Bangladesh for an, a democratic and a secular society. And we wanted a Bangladesh which is inclusive. And the panelists like Mrs. Kabir, Mr. David, and uh, Julie mentioned about the importance of family planning, 
the government's industries and uh, uh, kind of induce role uh, as a very important factor. But what Mr. Sen mentioned that the leadership, incidentally women, presented a vision 2021 and Mr. David said this society is unplanned. If I may humbly you know, share with you that we have a vision 2021 presented by the women leadership for a middle-income country and 2041 for a developed economy. We have perspective plan, internalized all the elements to change the society, and the present government can modestly claim that Bangladesh middle income is there with inclusive society, women empowerment, poverty reduction, and everything. Really thank must. you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> yes, over there. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Valerie, I'm third year undergrad for social policy and government. Um, I have a question for Julie. Um, I found the, um, your, your um, conclusion about women um, choosing to um, go into a loveless marriage very interesting. I was wondering, are there any other factors that might limit them, despite the fact they're in a loveless marriage, um, for their empowerment? Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else here? Yes, over there. Thank you. I'm Lamona, and I'm currently pursuing a PhD in law. I'm looking at uh, Professor Sen's capability approach so, yeah. into law. Uh, I'm looking at your capability approach into law, and my question is, actually I have two questions. First, uh, you all predominantly agreed that there has been gender equality and social progress, so I'm curious to know if there has been a philosophical realization by women of this progress, and second, how do you perceive the future of Bangladesh given the rising religious extremism? Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Where was the other one? Yeah, this one. Okay, we'll take this one here, and then there's someone over there. Yes. Uh, yes, uh, Daniel Horn. Um, my question regards the growing proportion of older persons in Bangladesh and what gender equality means for that uh, for, for, for the population in general by 2050 something about 20 percent of the population should be over 65 um, which is currently about eight percent now given that women make up the majority of the informal care work in that country um, what does gender equality pose for the country in terms of old age care and in terms of the economy in the future thank you and we'll take one more at the back there, yes. Hi, I'm Stephanie. I'm a master's student here at the LSE in the development department. Um, so you guys all seem to agree that the development process in Bangladesh has been kind of like a piecemeal process. It's been very experimental. There have been like unexpected consequences. And so my question is, like, what kind of, what can you learn from that? What kind of insights can you take from that to then apply to other cases? Obviously, you can't just like generalize the, the findings and just smack them onto another country, but like what kind of main insights can be like extrapolated to, to outside Bangladesh? Okay, we'll just take those. Uh, Amartya, did you want to address any of them? Well, there was one question was addressed to me particularly. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the... You can address uh, them all if you like. <laughs> no, no. They are not. 
<laughs> yeah, that's to Julie and you and so on. Uh, I think today to is a realization of uh, reduction of gender uh, inequality. I think there is a clear realization. I mean, you see that in the, if you read the newspapers, that certainly uh, very clear uh, indication of, 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 of that there have been a change. Unless, I, uh, unless I'm misunderstanding the question you asked, it's not a kind of happened without people recognizing that it is happening. I think on the subject of religious extremism, I mean, that is, of course, a phenomenon in the world very much. I mean, it's, in the, it's, it's true of all the countries in, in the subcontinent right now. Um, the, um, the special thing about uh, uh, religious extremism and the form it takes in Bangladesh is that it's a, it seems to be, at least on, on all accounts, a fairly clear minority phenomenon uh, that is a small group of people who are very involved in it. Now, that doesn't help the bloggers who can't walk on the street because, you know, they might get killed. It doesn't matter whether everyone is against them, which they are not, or only a few, but because if, if, if it's dangerous, it's dangerous. On the other hand, it's, that is the Bangladeshi society radically turning more religious extremism. Certainly, many of the symbols of uh, religiousness is present there, like, uh, you know, what you're wearing, whether you're covering your hair or covering your body and so on. Um, one doesn't get the impression just looking at the literature and the music and so on that religion extremism is winning out in, 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 in Bangladesh as a general phenomenon. And increasingly it's much more of a law and order problem than a deeply cultural problem. And I would say that in some ways I mean, many parts of India, that's of course also true. But in those parts of India where religious extremism has increased, some of it actually has been a crowd phenomenon, which is much more worrying than an isolated case of, you know, than a number of cases of people being killed uh, by machete or whatever it is. Uh, I'm much more worried about, you know, a whole group of villagers coming and attacking a group on suspicion of eating beef or whatever it is. And so I think if you look at the type of religion, I mean, let me make clear that I'm <coughs> worried about any kind of religious extremism. But the, there are, uh, the form of religious extremism that we see in Bangladesh, it seems, unless I'm very much mistaken, seems to me of a kind which hasn't taken at least not yet, the phenomenon of being a, a, a public uh, uh, attitudinal change as opposed to a determined political change on the part of a relatively small group of people. Thank you. Sure. Um, so I'll address the question of um, the, what you called loveless marriage, I think. Um, arranged marriage is not at all necessarily a loveless marriage. Love often grows within that relationship, and, so, and, and quite often as well, these are two individuals who have known each other and are interested in each other prior to the arranged match. What an arranged marriage really kind of refers to is that the parents have had a part in agreeing to 
the into the marriage, um, and it, the factors that are considered are compatibility not just between families and livelihoods and status and land holding and all that, but also between the two individuals. Um, but even so, even with um, instances where um, women find husbands who, on their own, um, separate from their families, uh, there are constraints that they face. Uh, often the, they lack then the family support. Um, so if they run into trouble, then it's, it's harder for them to gain support from their, their immediate families. Um, even in uh, arranged marriages where husbands do allow women to work, um, women still often face a lot of stigma in the workplace. It's a lot harder to progress in the career hierarchies, um, and they get paid less, but those are instances that are also true in this country. Um, and the lack of family support also relates to the question about um, caring labor and what happens to older generations. And this is a big concern for the parents of this current um, marrying generation because often families are increasingly nucleating. So rather than having a big household where all of the sons and their wives and families live all together, um, the sons often prefer to separate off. And so that leaves parents in quite a vulnerable state. Um, but also, this is forcing other changes to happen, which are quite interesting. So typically, wives will join husbands in their villages. They leave their, nat their natal home and go to live in their husband's village. But if parents um, lack sons' support because they've nucleated off, um, or they don't have sons, in many cases now, husbands are joining wives in their villages. Um, and so that's also in, uh, introducing new kinds of um, gender relations as well. Thank you. I'm going to be very brief. I'm going to just have a quick go at the question up there about what, you know, what can we learn. And I think, um, you know, Bangladesh has already, I think, been a place that has exported a huge amount of ideas about development. I mean, one could talk about everything from oral rehydration to, you know, community medicine to microfinance, of course, which has, which has spread all over the world. I mean, the one thing that I would say that I think Bangladesh is going to be, we're going to be learning much more about is climate change adaptation and resilience. And I think um, people in Bangladesh have been dealing with unstable environments for generations. There's a huge amount to learn from how people engage with that main lesson probably being community level, you know, bottom-up organization, very, very important. Okay, and I'll, I'll take a quick moment as well, perhaps to... <clears throat> one is about the elderly, and that is one of the things that is driving the move away from strong son preference is not just the nucleation of the family, but the idea that sons are now lost to their wives in a way that parents still have hopes that their daughters will look after them, that there is more uh, affinity from the daughter. I mean, I don't know if this will be borne out in practice, but certainly a lot of parents feel that their daughters will look after them in a way that the sons now focus on their own families and their own children. I think the other point is about uh, what can we learn. You know, one is the experimentation that has gone on in Bangladesh, but the other is actually it's experimentation that has come from within. It has not been imposed from outside. 
And as a result, I think a great deal of what characterizes uh, successes in Bangladesh have been tailoring it to local circumstances and not being very grandiose in your ambitions. When we talked about pragmatism, one of the things that struck me is that, you know, we went for small-scale tube wells. You know, we went for microfinance. We went for, you know, things that were kind of scaled down uh, to the level that, that, that reflected possibilities on the ground. So in India, they talk about the missing middle, where they have these huge, great... Uh, industries with a, a high level of unionization and very protective. And then you have lots of little, little industries. In Bangladesh, I think we have a much more uh, graduated structure because there has never been that very grand ambition. So I like to think of one of the best qualities of Bangladesh as, I think of it as the mouse that roared, you know, sort of, uh, it's, it's, it doesn't have very grandiose uh, ideas about its place in the world, but it's managed to progress through steps that reflect what is locally possible. And I think that's something perhaps uh, countries could learn. Thank you very much. We have now come to the end of our evening. And you are all welcome. And I think Mukalika is going to give a non-voter thing. <laughs> Where is she? You may have to do it. Well, <laughs> well, uh, Amartya, we are very, very glad you could be here with us. And, uh, <laughs> Me and, too. And, and I even learned such unexpected things as the merits of Elaine Merritt. Yes, yes, which you did not know about before. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, thank you very much, and you're very welcome to join us.